As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. He was a person of deep convictions, but not hard edges. Honestly, I think his temperament, his innate temperament helped him. He was not someone drawn to conflict. He was by nature, I think, a peacemaker, a bridge builder. The world of music, entertainment, and hip hop, and also just the disenfranchised community that I came from, there weren't a lot of people who were speaking to that in a very um, a thoughtful way. And Tim Keller's words and his writings on you know, connecting with people who had various different views and beliefs were just incredibly challenging, a gift to me. It's often said in order to explain something simply, you have to understand something profoundly. And that was true for Tim in that he had a big brain, he had a big heart, but he never felt like he was showing off. You are listening to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. I'm Ruth Jackson, and our guests today are Grammy Award-winning rapper Lecrae, author and social activist Dr. Krish Kandaya, and former White House staffer Peter Weiner. Before we hear from those guests, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And do get in touch to let us know your thoughts. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But now for today's show. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topic that matters. And today we're taking a look at the life of Dr. Tim Keller, one of the 21st century's most influential and revered church leaders, to quote Peter Weiner, one of my wonderful guests today. I am delighted to be joined by three guests who knew Tim Keller in different capacities, Lecrae, Peter Weiner and Dr. Krish Kandaya. Lecrae is a multi-award winning hip-hop artist, an actor, an author and social activist. And when Tim Keller died, he said on Twitter that he's only been starstruck by three people, Michael Jordan, Jay-Z and, you've guessed it, Tim Keller. Peter Weiner is a senior fellow at Trinity Forum, a journalist and author of The Death of Politics. He's also a former White House insider, having worked with three US presidents. And joining us from the UK, we have Dr. Krish Kandaya, OBE, a social entrepreneur, director of the Sanctuary Foundation and author of many books, including Paradoxology. Well, what a lineup, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today on Unbelievable. It's an absolute pleasure to have all of you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. It's great to be here, Ruth. Lecrae, you said on your Instagram that Tim Keller changed your life. Now, that is quite a statement, and you actually mention him in a couple of your songs. So how did he change your life? Oh, man. Uh, Let me count the ways. Um, I think primarily, you know, just understanding that I was somebody who did not grow up in church, uh, didn't grow up in a Christian context, came into the faith as a skeptic. 
and then after becoming a Christian, wanted to engage the world of music, entertainment, and hip hop, and also just the the disenfranchised community that I came from. There weren't a lot of people who were speaking to that in a very um, a thoughtful way, and uh, and 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 Dr. Keller's Tim Keller's words and his writings on you know connecting with people who had various different views and beliefs were f- f- you know just incredibly challenging a gift to me and I was able to contextualize them and kind of use them in a way that would help me speak to the people around me and it was just extremely fruitful um and and for that I'm eternally grateful you know the way he spoke about being a missionary in your city a missiologist so to speak um his he was very thoughtful on the, the the sociological and anthropological views of a city and uh just coming just being a city kid myself i needed somebody who could say these things and synthesize them in a way that i could grasp and then regurgitate for a lot of the people that i was you know in relationship with and why do you think he did care so much about the city lecrae um, I mean, of, of course, he lived in New York City. Uh, of course, he spent a, a lot of time there, which is a very incredibly diverse community. Um, but also because, you know, the city, as you know, to, to use some terminology that he would use, is, you know, not trying to clean up an oil spill where, the you know, some of the outskirts, the suburbs, the smaller places are influenced by the major city. That will be the spill or, or the, the, the effects of the spill, but go straight to the tanker and, and go straight to the source of where the oil is coming from and, and be able to dilute that oil with goodness, with, with flourishing, with, you know, a healthy uh, dilution of antidote, so to speak. And I think that's what happens when you're in major cities. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. And Peter Weiner, you came into contact with Tim Keller quite early on in his ministry. So would you be able to sort of sketch out a little bit for us the extent of Keller's work for perhaps those who don't know him, you know, the way that he planted churches in New York and and the sort of city to city thing that that flowed out of that. But I guess as you're doing that, I'm aware that you are obviously very good friends with Tim Keller. So would you perhaps be able to share some of your fondest memories of him as well? Sure. Uh, yeah, I first met um, Tim in, in the uh, early 1990s. My wife was an early uh, attendant of Redeemer, uh, which started in 1989, that Tim founded in New York City in Manhattan with his wife, uh, with his wife, Kathy. And I remember um, I was living in, in the D.C. area, Northern Virginia at the time, and <clears throat> she lived in New York City. And she told me, she said, I'm attending a church with the best pastor uh, in, in, in the country. And his name is Tim Keller. And I remember listening to tapes, uh, when we would drive, um, up and down the East coast of sermons of Tim's, including on marriage and, and Tim and Kathy counseled, uh, Cindy, including during our relationship. So I, I first met him, um, through Cindy. Um, I was impressed enough with Tim that there was a gathering, uh, in the Washington DC area in the mid nineties, talk about Christianity and culture. And I invited both Tim and Kathy to that. And over time, um, I was just in touch with him, um, in contact with him, learned from him, developed a friendship with him. And in the last several years, he became a member of a book club that I host, which is about a dozen people. That was a monthly book club and then a weekly Zoom call with a very eclectic group 
of people, some, some believers, some unbelievers, writers, uh, theologians, uh, and, uh, and, and journalists. And so we spent a lot of time on those calls together. And then I would also um, email Tim a lot on theological issues. I've been a person who's been a question asker uh, my entire Christian life. And, um, and I find it very, very helpful to talk to people of different views and to try and, in a sense, engage in a dialectic, ask them questions, probe their thinking. Uh, and what was striking to me about Tim is, particularly somebody of his stature, that he set aside the time to do that with me. And even beyond that, the spirit with which he engaged the questions, there was never a whiff of defensiveness, never tried to, to shut the conversation down, uh, and was never curt or short. He really engaged in these questions. And to me, it was a model because I didn't share all of Tim's beliefs or I wasn't sure about all of them. But his capacity to listen, um, to listen well, to be able to tell me what it is that the arguments that I was making to make sure that he understood them was just a model of, of intellectual integrity um, to me, theological integrity. And then that he was just a, he had a pastor's heart. He wasn't emotive. Um, he wasn't a person. He was naturally somebody, I think, who distrusted emotions or at least was wary of them. And his, his own journey to faith was, was you know, very, very much intellectual. So he was not emotive as a pastor, but he was direct and he was kind. And the number of lives that he has touched just from the circle of friends that I know or the people I've heard of since Tim died where he would just reach out to them to encourage them to see how they're doing over the course of their life it was really touching and a, and a huge testimony to his heart um, as, as well as, as those elements that I described, which are testimony to, to, to the quality of his mind. And Chris, that's something you said when you wrote an obituary about him as well. You sort of emphasized that pastoral heart of Tim Keller, didn't you? I think there are many things that make Tim really unique and it's so encouraging hearing from Lecrae and Peter um, just these different facets of his character and he did combine in a, a unique way I think a pastoral heart and emotional intelligence and a razor-sharp mind that was able to dissect arguments and explain the gospel in really clear ways. Those two things don't always go together with people who are either highly theologically trained or what, what Christians sometimes call apologists so people that like to explain what the faith means to to skeptics but he brought that together in a unique way and um, and that pastor's heart uh, meant that he was leading a church he, he wasn't an itinerant evangelist a lot of people who again have that apologetic gift of explaining faith are traveling all around the world and Tim did travel but he, he was also very grounded in New York and for me, that made his preaching so rich. A lot of traveling evangelists and apologists really only have three talks and they just could just give it everywhere they go and probably only have one book in them as well. And um, But Tim, because week after week, he was opening the Bible uh, to a mixed congregation, some people who were believers, other people that were on their journey of faith. It, it means he's always connecting the gospel with some really interesting aspects of life that people might not have connected before. It, it, my first exposure to Tim's preaching was his series on marriage, and those tapes were being bootlegged around the world. Everyone wanted to hear them. I, I remember 
um, doing marriage preparation classes for people and, and your homework was to listen to the tape and discuss it and then we'd meet again. But Tim managed to help us understand, well, what does the gospel have to say about marriage and what does marriage help us understand about the gospel? But he would do that about, you know, the, the latest article in the Atlantic. He would talk about um, ideology. He would talk about um, culture, anything he could find that would be a bridge builder, a connector between the gospel and everyday life. And I think he, he, he had a unique set of skills in that. Um, and I'm so encouraged to hear about the things that were going on underneath the surface. Um, too many leaders, we, we, we see a projection at the front and something very different behind. But there have been so many stories emerging of, of Tim's private ministry, things he wasn't doing in the limelight, but just getting on and encouraging people. I think one of my favorites came out in the New York Times today, um, Tish Warren, uh, who's a, an amazing author. Um, she wrote an article and then had a, a massive kind of social media pile on, really angry with her. And Tim had reached out to her and encouraged her. And she said, look, I, I'm a female priest in the Anglican church. That's not something that Tim's theology actually has space for, a, a woman preacher or leader. But he still wanted to encourage me. And I think that's a really big sign of his maturity and his big heart for people, for the world, for secular people and for Christians he didn't necessarily always agree with. Now, obviously, you all know that Tim Keller has been called a pastor to the sceptics. And I would imagine many of those sceptics, perhaps some who are listening today, are wanting to ask a question that may well be on our hearts as well. And it's a really difficult one of how God can exist if he let this incredibly significant Christian leader die of cancer. And, and only just earlier this year, um, Tim Keller told myself and, and um, Justin Briley that he had been praying for healing every day. Him and Kathy had been praying together for healing and that healing obviously didn't happen. Um, and Lecrae, I know you have spoken about unanswered prayer. So I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on that and and how we respond to these questions. You know, I would think it's, it's extremely important to have the questions, to even be able to ask those questions. Um, I think a, a person who is not permitted to wrestle with those particular things, um, you know, is being set up for failure in a lot of different ways. Um, I would say that, you know, uh, from all of my understanding and reading, you know, God is is complex and and not just a simple bearded person in the sky uh, who you you can't wrestle with the harder, deeper ponderings of life with. Um, and so, obviously, there is some aspect of understanding that. Life is full of seasons. You know, if you were look, if you were to look in the Bible at a book like Ecclesiastes, it asks a lot of these existential kind of questions and and makes us wonder, like, what's the meaning? What's the point? What is all this leading to? Um, but then you do realize that there is a time and a season for everything there, that that death is a reality that awaits all humanity, um, that that's just a fact of life. And. I would say this for anybody who's wrestling, um, you kind of assume a Christian worldview when you question the goodness of God for letting bad things happen. Because what you're assuming in that question is that um, God is supposed to be good and that, you know, he is uh, 
behind everything in the first place. You can't be mad at a God that you don't believe exists. Um, and so what I would, you know, say to people is, well, you got to ask yourself, do you think that you're a cosmic accident? Do you think you're just a, a, a bunch of random atoms and molecules? And if so, then nothing matters. Your breathing doesn't matter. Your purpose doesn't matter. There, What basis do you have for goodness or morality if we're all just a random occurrence of of molecules. But if we do believe that we matter, we have purpose, that there is a, a moral, um, you know, uh, authority in some sense, then where does that come from? And now you've got to wrestle with the reality that there is a creator that, that gives us purpose, worth, value, and that there is a moral authority in the universe. And so I would just encourage people that, man, that is true and God is good. And to wrestle with those questions is to wrestle with a very good, patient and kind God who's willing to, um, you know, entertain all of those 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 wrestles that we have internally. And um, and, and hopefully there'll be people who represent him um, in and around you that are an exemplar an exemplification of of that patience, that love, and that like Dr. Keller was, who can answer those questions in a very kind, patient, and thoughtful way. And Peter, I know this will be really, really hard because Tim Keller was a, a close friend of yours, and I'm sure you probably spoke to him and Kathy about this. But you know, have you got any thoughts about this this really difficult topic? And I suppose, how would you respond to some of those questions of the skeptics who perhaps are thinking, oh, you know, I was beginning to read some of his books and think about these things, but where does it leave me now? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I'd echo what Lecrae said, which is people um, should ha feel the, the space and the liberty to ask those questions. I've asked them. I mean, to tell you the truth, I don't know the answer to that, and I've explored it. I don't know the answer to theodicy in any way that um, that, that uh, uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And, I, and I'll tell you how, how I've approached it, and this is just my own specific journey of faith, which was uh, relatively early, but years into my, my Christian journey, I spent an awful lot of time focusing on the crucifixion and the resurrection. And did that happen? In fact, I, I even did a college paper at University of Washington, which was not a Christian school, examining the case for and against the uh, the resurrection. And I came to believe um, that it did happen, and the figure of Christ, Jesus was who he who he said he was. And and there's a scholar who's a who was a friend or acquaintance of Tim who did the definitive book. Uh, N. T. Wright is his name, and the resurrection and the Son of God. And even after I came to, to believe that the resurrection was real, it still wasn't really, I, I don't think, deeply embedded in my heart. A couple of years into that, that journey, I came to some sort of understanding, um, which seems obvious, but, but it wasn't to me until, until it dawned on me. And that was that the central event of human history was the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that defined the character of God toward us for all time. So whatever the answers to those questions were, they were consistent with that God on the cross and the love that he had for us. That didn't answer the specific question. It, it only meant that those questions wouldn't, from my perspective, become a referendum on God's character. And I've learned as I've gotten older 
for me that I have to live more with mystery and, and with tension in life that the faith that I was part of the evangelical subculture earlier. And, um, I, for me, it's a little too neat and a little too tidy sometimes. Um, and they're jagged edges and they can't really, really always be explained. Philip Yancey is a, is a good friend of mine. And I once asked Philip, um, I, how do you make sense of suffering? And he said, Pete, I don't know why God allows suffering. All I know is that God is on the side of the sufferer. And I thought, that's enough for me. Um, and I also appreciated the fact that he didn't try and sell me a set of arguments that really weren't going to persuade me. Um, that's my experience of it. I know that there are, there are apologists who have wrestled with the Odyssey, and I've examined those arguments. And for a lot of people, they make a lot of sense. It just doesn't get me quite there. And one other thing I'll say, apropos Tim, because I did a profile on Tim in 2019 in The Atlantic called The Moral Universe of Tim Keller. And I asked him directly that question. Basically, the way, the way that he answered it is he, he, could, he could get to a certain point, but he really couldn't, in the end, completely answer it sufficiently. And I appreciate what I consider to be the intellectual honesty of people of faith to be able to say, I'm not sure. I think that's really helpful. Chris, as our resident theologian, do you have anything to add to all of these amazing comments? Oh, I just want to agree with with both of them. Lecrae helps us think about the idea that God's ultimately in control, the sovereignty of God. Um, and that, that was a really important part of Tim's theology. It doesn't mean we always understand what God's doing, but there's this confidence that God knows what he's doing and we can submit to him. And I'm, I'm with Peter as well to, you know, for me personally, but also I see it in, in Tim's work, it, it always ends up coming back to the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And this, this idea, the crucifixion shows us just the degree to which our sin is so problematic that it, it's so deadly to us that God needs to sacrifice his son and the son willingly offers himself. Um, and yet it also shows us that the depth to which we are loved, that God would, would do that for us. So um, everything comes back to the cross. But Tim, I mean, he, he, he was so pastoral that he wrote a book about death as he was dying. And one quote that really jumped out to me that I thought might be helpful, um, Tim quotes George Herbert, the poet. And he says this, George Herbert says, death used to be an executioner but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Death used to be able to crush us, but now all death can do is plant us in God's soil till we become something extraordinary. And this idea that, that those of us that are followers of Jesus, we're walking in his footsteps. Jesus died and was raised to life again. And we believe that will be our journey too, that our death is not the end, that we have this hope of the resurrection. And from what I saw of Tim, even as he knew that death was, you know, nearly upon him, this great confidence he had that death was not the end, that we don't need to grieve like the rest of the world grieves, that we believe in a God of resurrection and hope. And I, I would say to those that are struggling with his death, just look at Tim's own approach to his death. Um, he, he did pray and he prayed for, uh, for healing, but he also trusted in, in God's timing. 
And for me, that there's something important in the Bible. It talks about finishing the race well. Not that the, the race will last forever, our physical life will last forever, but that we're supposed to finish it well. And from everything I've seen, and only God knows the whole story, but from everything I've seen, Tim seems to be one who finished the race well. And he sets us an example, not just of how to live, but how to die well. And I think that's a really important gift to us. But Ruth, if I can just say, it was a very quickly to add from what Gersh said, because I think it's important. That is really, really true. Um, Tim said to, 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 to me and to others that I know, he didn't want to die, but he felt that he was more at peace and had greater happiness. And he talked also very specifically about his prayer life. And he said, whether I'm healed of cancer or not, I'd never want to go back to the life that I had before cancer in terms of my spiritual understanding. And that really is the acid test, isn't it? I mean, when you are facing your death, that is when you find out whether the faith is real or if it's an affectation. And the people who I've most looked up to in my life who have passed, that's a huge, huge testimony that they can um, walk toward death with grace. Um, and, and the other thing is almost as much grace and the ability to die well uh, and at peace facing it. Those are two elements that reach an unbelieving world in ways that almost nothing else that I've experienced do. It's like that's the closest there is to a frequency for people who, who, who aren't on the same frequency with, with faith. And Tim embodied that. And that just was very meaningful. This is all so helpful. And um, as you said, Chris, you know, the, the sort of the referencing the Bible, the fact that we don't grieve as people without hope. But also I was always really struck by how much Tim Keller quoted um, Tolkien and that amazing line that, it, you know, it's it's everything sad will become untrue. And I do think that, you know, it, there's so much hope, isn't there, in all of this. And I so appreciate the way that you guys are talking about these really difficult things. Um, I want to be hearing more and more about this topic because you're doing such a great job of explaining it, but we're going to have to take a quick break there. But there is still lots more to come. So you are listening to Premier Unbelievable with me, Ruth Jackson, and my wonderful guests today are Lecrae, Krish Kandaya, and Pete Weiner. And we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Premier Unbelievable, where we are discussing the life and the legacy of Tim Keller, founder of Redeemer Church in New York City. My guest. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. 
And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Today are Krish Kandaya, Pete Weiner, and Lecrae. Now, Lecrae, I hope you don't mind um, me reading out an Instagram post that you sent. Um, but I just, I was so moved by it. And I know because I think you had like well over 600 comments to it. So I know that it really moved many, many other people. Um, this is what you said. This is just a, a snippet of it. You say, Tim Keller's words have been a light in dark places for me. I've never expressed how he brought me through the worst seasons of my life, how his refusal to be part of the evangelical industrial complex was empowering for my soul. When racism and counter culture detoured me, Tim Keller was a consistent voice. And for a season in 2017, he was the only non-person of colour that I could listen to. Firstly, I just want to say, Lecrae, I'm so, so sorry that that was your experience. And if you're happy to share just a little bit about what was going on at the time and how Tim Keller helped you, I feel like that would be so helpful. Oh, for sure. Um, well, as I said before, uh, I didn't grow up in, in Christian culture or as a Christian. Um, you know, of course, I grew up... Um, yeah, and like, you know, typical disenfranchised community, uh, gang influences, you know, you make it to the NBA or you become a rapper. I clearly didn't make it to the NBA. Um, and uh, <clears throat> but I had a very brilliant mother who encouraged us to read. And so I had, you know, just an appetite to learn and to read. And, and it fueled a lot of my skepticism. Um, and growing up without my biological father, I found myself in a very precarious situation of just uh, insecurity and pain. And the Christian community was, for what I thought at the time, was like the, the, the South to that pain that I was experiencing. Now, it was a very um, American kind of Southern conservative evangelical version of Christianity. And... Um, for a while, I, I just assumed that all of the problems that I had experienced in life were would dissipate because I had this new family. Um, but once, you know, some issues within uh, the, the African-American community started to to become prominent, specifically the, the, the murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, and I, I spoke up about it. I was met with a lot of backlash from the evangelical community, which kind of struck me like, he took me aback. Like, what? what you, I'm confused. Um, where where do we see differently? And so, for for me, the only context I had for Christianity was kind of that evangelical culture, and I had assimilated a group of thinkers and leaders and pastors that I just thought would be supportive of of me. And regardless, and I was met with a lot of silence. Um, and you know, Tim Keller was one of the voices that I had kind of gravitated to, though he didn't quite fit that kind of cultural space. He he was still a voice that those people listened to. And um, 
man, in the midst of that silence, in the midst of people kind of pushing against me and just saying, man, like uh, your your views are inconsistent with God's views. I was confused. I was so confused. I, I just kind of was disenfranchised and did a bit of deconstruction where I, I didn't know if this Christian faith was real. Um, but but Tim's voice would keep echoing and he would say things that pushed back on these perspectives and even to the point where he disassociated with the term evangelical because it, it has such negative connotations. And that to me um, was very helpful because it, it allowed me to continue to hold on to, to, to my faith in Jesus, even if the cultural context around it was confusing and didn't make sense. And uh, I just greatly appreciate him for, for being patient and walking through. He wrote a book called Prodigal Prophet that dealt with Jonah that really like walked me through the darkest season I've ever experienced. And then for him to kind of invite me in to be a part, a, a, a contributing author to to a book um, and, and just to sit and talk with him in St. Louis and just to get he just I just sat and talked with me, you know, and just wrestled with stuff. And his perspectives were much different than I had imagined. And that to me was probably like more powerful than I, I think anybody would ever understand or know. And I know you had lots of people on social media sort of echoing your sentiments, um, particularly around the line, uh, the, the, refusal, the refusal to be part of the evangelical industrial complex. Do you mind just saying a, a little bit about that? And then I'd love to see what, what you, Peter and Chris, think about that. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, um, unfortunately, I mean, and this is not just, just to harp on Christianity, but I mean, it, it can happen with any faith. But unfortunately, a lot of people use faith as a conduit for capitalism, uh, for building an empire. And um, once you have reached the highest heights within, you know, evangelicalism, you see a lot of how the sausage is made and you're, it, it can be very discouraging. Um, and I never saw Tim make moves that were uh you know, advantageous to his career as an evangelical. He actually did quite the opposite. He did things and said things that would make people raise an eyebrow. Uh, he, it didn't seem like he was trying to build an empire or trying to fit in with the leading uh, evangelical leaders. There was lots of teachers in New York City who are prominent, lots of pastors who are prominent and doing a lot of big things and making appearances on Oprah and whatnot. And you just never saw Tim fighting or vying for that attention or to, to claw his way to the top of that ladder. Um, he just was going to be faithful to the gospel and faithful to being what God called him to be. And that was extremely encouraging to me. Great. Mm. That's, that's so helpful and, and so true. Watching some of the culture wars going on in the U.S. from over here, and to be fair, we, we've got our own version of it. it. Just seems slightly less extreme than it is in America. But it does seem that the and evangelicals become quite an elastic word here. But the evangelical community often seems to back the wrong horse. You know, so w when you've got an opportunity to discuss racism after George Floyd's death, you think the gospel's got something to say about this. You know, we, we've got a better story than the world can offer 
where we can actually point to the fact that every single human being has value, dignity and worth. And, and the gospel underwrites that in a way that nothing else does. But what what's the first reaction from large portions of the evangelical community is to distance themselves from critical race theory, Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and you go, OK, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, they're not perfect. Right. But there was an opportunity for some common ground, for, for some bridge building, and to say that what you're asking for is what the gospel actually offers us. But instead, to to just throw the whole thing out, um, it's just desperate. And, and that deconstruction that you talked about going through, I think so many, um, possibly a whole generation are going through it. And I, like you, I love the way that Tim transcended that conversation he didn't pick a side in the culture war he always sought to elevate things so that you were looking at a genuine gospel perspective on things and you know i, I didn't agree with him on everything um I, I probably was very different from my views on on the role of women for example but on the vast majority of the big issues he seemed to call it right and i think that was partly his pastor's heart partly his love of the scriptures like genuinely the whole of the bible and the fact that, you know, I feel like he was continually asking himself, where would Jesus locate himself in this conversation? And, and that's always your North Star. And it doesn't always feel like that when evangelicals engage in politics. And you mentioned this other thing, moving away from the word evangelical. I find myself hardly using the word anymore. Um, I'm as evangelical as ever when it comes to the basic doctrines of my faith you know, the resurrection of Jesus, the authority of scripture, the Trinity, I'm there. But evangelical feels more like a political position. And that political position is not one I necessarily share. And that's, that's a huge issue. Because once you start conflating politics and theology, um, then you disassociate yourself from the opportunity to actually speak truth into the culture. So I'm so sorry you had that experience. But I, I agree with you, Tim offered a really different way forward. And I'm really quite nervous about what's the next step. Like who who steps into those incredible shoes and offers a gospel mainline, mainstream approach forward? I, I don't see those voices emerging. They tend to be voices on the extreme end of the spectrum rather than someone who I would say was a genuine Christian statesperson. Peter, I'd love to hear you jump in with any thoughts that you've got on this as a Christian who was obviously engaged with politics for a really long time. And you, you said at the beginning that you were part of the evangelical subculture. Now, do you have any thoughts about any of, of what Lecrae and Chris have been saying so far? Yeah, it really resonates. I mean, uh, thanks, Lecrae, for, for sharing that. I mean, it's, it's a moving and a painful story. But it's an important it's an important story um, as as well because it's it's a reality. In some respects, I I think about the time that we've gone through as a kind of cat scan um, that <clears throat> things that were true and maybe weren't seen have have now been have have been uh, revealed. Um, and part of what I think has been revealed is for an awful lot of people who would honestly say that 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 Christianity was core central and core to their identity. In fact, there are other things that turned out to be core to their identity. <clears throat> Sociology, psychology, family of origin, par partisan politics, and other things. 
And faith was actually subordinate to it, and it was used to to validate and ratify these pre-existing sen- sentiments. Um, and that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. We all struggle with it, right? We're all products of, of, of dozens and dozens of different things that we're unaware of. Um, but then you get into the proof texting war. You sort of say, well, there's this verse or, 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 or that, that, that Bible story that, that validates what, what, I, what I already believe. Um, but in the end, what matters is the fruit of the spirit. And, you know, by, by your fruits, you'll, you'll, you'll be known. Um, it's, so it's been a painful time for those of us of the Christian faith. I, uh, very similar to, 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 to uh, both of you. Um, I wrote a piece actually in the New York Times, I think this was in 2018, um, where I said I no longer call myself an evangelical or, or identify with the Republican Party even though I still consider myself a Christian and a person who's philosophically conservative because I thought they were different things. And I do, I, I also think that the evangelical, it, it's a, it's a term that's gotten so muddied because I think for a lot of people, um, certainly for a watching world, it's understandable. They think of evangelical and they think of political positions or political figures or culture war issues rather than a set of doctrinal beliefs. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed is that people who claim to be evangelicals have adapted fundamentalist sensibilities. Um, there was back in the 20th century, there was a break. It was the, called the, you know, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And there were people like Carl Henry and to some extent, Billy Graham and the advent of Christianity today and so forth. And that was the sort of evangelicalism that that Tim grew up in and was attracted from. And that pushed away from the anti-intellectualism of some of the fundamentalist movements and so forth. And, um, and so uh, that, uh, that confluence of events has done, has done a lot of, of, of harm to, to the faith. The other thing I was, I was just say about Tim um, and building on what Lecrae had said, Tim cared very much about justice, social justice and racial justice. But he was not partisan and he was not he was not political and he was able to separate that he was able to 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 speak to certain um, ideals or certain principles because he believed there was an intersection between faith and culture and political life because his theology said so he, he wasn't an anti-baptist he wasn't plymouth brethren where he thought there was a separation but he was very very careful not to politicize uh, the faith and to keep that distance. But even at the end of his life, as respected as he was, when he weighed in on issues of justice, including racial justice, we're at a time that some people on, on, on the American right, quite honestly, would go after him. Um, and it's, it's a sad moment, but a revealing moment. Um, but you have to know what the, what, what the landscape is if you hope to hope to rebuild. I guess one of the things um, that is sort of coming up here is is the idea that you know evangelicalism and even Christianity has sort of made itself completely irrelevant in some senses. And why would non Christians even want to engage in any of these sort of big questions and things like that? Because it looks so unattractive to so many non Christians. And and Chris, you were organised. Um, you you sort of helped organise a mission at Oxford University, didn't you, here in the UK, and you invited Tim to come and speak, which which he did accept. But I, I guess, why why were many of the students there, the non-Christian students, persuaded by the words of 
a Christian, um, a reformed American preacher who arguably had very little in common with them, um, with with many of their contexts. And I suppose they probably got all of those questions running around in their heads, haven't they? You know, you're a Christian, you don't like this about me or this about me. How did you see that actually he was so winsome in, in the way that he did it that actually that wasn't so much of an issue? Great question, Ruth. And I think that winsome word is is a key one. So many people use that about Tim because he he has a, a kind of patience and a graciousness about him, and yet he's still willing to wrestle with the very difficult things, the countercultural things that the Bible uh, has to say. Um, I was part of the standing committee, which is a funny word because we all sat down whenever we had a meeting <laughs> of the Oxford Intercollegiate Christian Union, so the OICU, and that's a group of church leaders that support a student group on, uh, well, it's not a campus, but at Oxford University. And we, we we thought, wouldn't it be fantastic to get Tim to come and address this group of students? They have a, a mission, a big mission every three years, and they bring in lots of people to kind of support it. And it's an opportunity to really um, talk about Christianity in public. It's an open meeting. Anyone can come, any background, no faith is assumed. And it's normally a, a week of events. And so Tim was doing evening talks and we took over the town hall in the centre of Oxford and invited just anybody who wanted to be there from the university to come and be part of it. And, and Tim simply opened up John's Gospel and walked through a chapter each night. And he, he did something actually really, really beautiful in that he, he would speak for a little bit, maybe 15, 20 minutes. He'd then take questions. Anything was open. You could talk about absolutely anything you wanted to that he'd brought up. And he'd respond, as we've seen in the past, very graciously, very engagingly, not trying to trap students into you know, boxes so that they'd, they'd refute themselves, but genuinely listening and engaging. Um, and then he'd do a little wrap-up talk at the end. And I, I think, I think, I mean, a lot of us have been saying this throughout. It's it's that winsomeness, it's that honesty. Um, when there was something he didn't have a snappy, you know, quick answer for. I mean, Tim was great at the kind of two-line summary. That was he was good at that, but not in a cheesy way that tried to oversimplify simplify things. Um, so I think they saw that. I mean, Tim men mentioned that he had found his Oxford experience challenging. I mean, New York is pretty secular, but Oxford University was on a par, if not even, even more challenging. And, and I think that, that was another thing about him was that he was continually learning. You know, he's in a book group because he wants to learn more, right? He's hungry for ideas and ways to engage. Um, and so I think it was part of a learning experience. He actually came back again a few years later. And one of the hooks that, that I think helped um, is that, Tim was a huge C.S. Lewis fan. And obviously, Tim was a, uh, C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford. And so we, we kind of played the C.S. Lewis girl. <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be wonderful, Tim, if you could come and preach where uh, C.S. Lewis had his ministry? And you can tell how much Tim loves Lewis. I think he said it in his, I've got his book, um, Preaching here. It's, it's recommended reading to anyone that's <laughs> to communicate Christian things. Um, he said, when I, when I haven't prepared, um, you'll hear lots of quotes from C.S. Lewis because that, that was his go-to person that would help him. And I think there is a lot in common between Tim and C.S. Lewis. Um, and Lewis uses this phrase, mere Christianity. Um, it, it's kind of centre-ground Christianity, not tribal Christianity, not political Christianity, but centre-ground, the main thing remaining the main thing. And if you read his books, I mean, I've read nearly all of them. I'd say 
Um, he isn't coming there with, you've got to belong to my denomination. You've got to join my tribe. He's sticking to the core things that really matter. And I think people sense that, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, they center that he's majoring on the major things. It's interesting you mentioned C.S. Lewis there, Chris. I actually did, um, uh, uh, for the uh, the other podcast that I do, the C.S. Lewis podcast, I did an interview with Colin Hansen, who's one of the biographers of um, of Tim Keller, about Tim Keller's love of C.S. Lewis. And, and there's so much in there. And Kathy Keller was actually one of the last people to correspond with C.S. Lewis before Lewis died. So wow. lots of amazing things in there, yeah. Now, Lecrae, I don't know whether you have any thoughts about the fact that someone was who was sort of so orthodox in so many of his views could attract so many non-believers in such a kind of secularized liberal city like New York. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're talking about, I mean, look at me. I'm a kid who grew up on hip-hop music. Spike Lee movies and and he's got me reading <laughs> Tolkien and watching Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? Like, I, how does that happen? Um, but I think it happens because he was authentically himself. He wasn't trying to be anybody else. He wasn't trying to kind of fit in. Um, and I think that's the appeal is that you have a, a man who is just being genuine and just being authentic and you don't get the sense that he's trying to appeal to, you know, who you want him to be, you get the sense that he genuinely cares about who you are and what your interests are. And I remember having a conversation where I was expressing, like, what does this look like for somebody like myself who engages some of the, the biggest artists in the world on a consistent basis? And one of the things I, I got from Tim was, you know, one was a recommendation of the the, the Center for, for Work and Faith, which introduced me to a, a, a lot of incredible people who were professional actors and, and and ballerinas and different people who were always kind of in in and out of these quote unquote secular spaces. Um, but but then it just taught me to be genuine and to be authentically myself and to let kind of my faith um be an outward expression of 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 who I was, and um, I think that's what attracted people to him. Um, obviously, you know he he wrote in a like you talked about C.S. Lewis. He wrote in a way that considered the perspectives of various different people from various walks of life. So I think that was helpful. Um, I know that I've had countless conversations with some of the biggest artists in the world over reasons for God. You know because it was the best way I couldn't answer their questions. I didn't even know where to begin, but I was like, I know a book, you know, and uh, we would go through that and, and talk about it. And, um, and I would try to synthesize it and, and try to, you know, say it in a, in a way that they could grasp it. But that's, I think that's the key is I feel like he was really good at explaining the scripture so that you could live your life. He, he was not going to tell me how to be, an entertainer or you how to be a, a, a Wall Street executive, he was going to explain the scriptures so that you could apply that to whatever aspect of life that you engaged in. Peter, I don't know whether you've got anything to add on that. We're nearly out of time, but vocation was a huge part of what Tim Keller talked about, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really was. I, I, I do have something to say about about that that. Um, line of, of, of discussion as it related to, to Tim. 
because um, you're right. I mean, he was he was a Calvinist, he was reformed, and he was conservative and orthodox in his beliefs, including on the role of women in ministry and on homosexuality. And so the, the puzzle for people was how did a guy planted a church in Manhattan in 89 become so popular? And I'd say a couple of things about it. Um, and then I wanted to tell one anecdote, which which I think speaks um, a lot about about Tim. The first is he didn't lead with culture war issues. If he was asked directly about them, he would answer because he felt compelled by how he understood the scripture that he had to give voice to what he thought was 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 true. But he didn't lead with those issues, and it would irritate. I think it's fair to say him and Kathy, if in the coverage of his ministry and of Redeemer, that that was a central part of the stories because they didn't consider it a central part of their mission or of their of their their church. The second thing is that Tim was able to, I think, articulate to people, young professional white collar workers in, in, in Manhattan, um, longings of their heart that maybe that they weren't able to articulate and he could, and that there was, that they were thirsting for something and that sort of secularism didn't actually answer that. A lot of them had a lot of money, a lot of success by worldly standards, and there were still these longings. And Tim was able to articulate that and 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 portray the Christian faith as um, as a kind of a, of a response to that, in a sanctuary, in a place of of community and of hope and of human fulfillment. And I think that's why he was able, in many respects, to be able to to reach people. That's not a population you would have thought would be amenable to to somebody with his conservative and orthodox views. In terms of the anecdote, I, I mentioned that I was part of a couple of Zoom groups, and one of them is a weekly uh, gathering on, on, on a Thursday. And it was started by several of us. And one of the people is, is a fellow named John Rausch. John is uh, Jewish, atheist, and gay. And um, I, because I knew Tim, I brought him into the, into the group. And it, there was a lovely friendship that developed between John and between Tim um, over, over the course of a couple of years. And I asked John after Tim died if he could express to me what Tim meant to him. Um, and he said uh, that um, I perceived, I have it written down, so I want to read it. I perceived his faith as a mystery and a search, not as a set of answers or rules. Outsiders and unbeliever, that, though I am, he made me feel like a member of a search party. And then John went on to say, I can't understand Tim's world, but his gift was to give me a glimpse of it. And he made me feel loved by him and by his God. I once asked him if God hears the prayers of an atheist. He said, yes, and I hope that's true. And in that spirit, I'll pray for him. Now, if you can do that with your life, which is to reach people like that, who come from different places of faith, uh, and, and, and a lot of other things. And you can create that kind of connection so that when Tim died, John was able to say authentically, I'm going to miss him and I loved him. That's an extraordinary testimony to, to, the, to the gospel. And that's what followers of Jesus do. They don't fight culture wars. They love people and they love them into the kingdom. And the number of people that Tim Keller loved into the kingdom is phenomenal. And he's got a lot of crowns uh, in heaven because, because of that work and, and because of that life. 
I wish we could carry on a little bit more, but we are going to have to take a quick break now. But do let us know what you think of the show. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.co.uk. And we will be hearing more from Krish Kandaya, Pete Weiner and Lecrae talking about Tim Keller and the incredible influence that he has clearly had on so, so many people in just a moment. Welcome back to the final part of our discussion on the author, pastor and apologist Tim Keller. You are listening to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. And we've been discussing those topics in the bucket loads. I'm Ruth Jackson and our wonderful guests today are Lecrae, Krish Kanzaya and Pete Weiner. Now, Lecrae, I would love to know what you think about this. Um, lots of people have been obviously commending the, the way that Tim Keller expounded the intellectual credibility of the Christian worldview. And I'm pretty sure you are the only rapper I know who has mentioned the biblical worldview uh, on your album, Church Clothes. Now, do you think he just appealed to intellectuals, Lecrae, or do you think there was a wider appeal in his ministry? Do, do you think, you know, you sort of had to be of a certain intellectual capacity in order to understand the biblical worldview that, that you mentioned in your song or do you think it's something that sort of appealed to to anyone who who was listening um well i i would say that you know the the principles and the things that he spoke about um were probably just extremely uh, accessible for people who weren't intellectuals, but if you were an intellectual, there was a, a depth and different layers that you could peel back. I I know for a fact I took a group of you know public school educated uh, you know lower income community folks through the Gospel and Life series and 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 just talked them through it. Um, we also did the, the the prodigal God series together and and they grasped it. And, you know, we had there were tears, you know, from from some of those uh, talks. So I would say that, you know, these are it's not that they I mean, all of these kids, not kids, young men and women had the capacity to be intellectuals. They just weren't given opportunities to stretch their their minds in that way. And I and I would say that Tim's work was the beginning of that. I would even say that for myself. In a lot of ways, um, I wasn't thinking about these types of topics until I came across a lot of his work. It just wasn't something on the forefront of my mind. So I, I have the mindset that you don't grow as an intellectual without access to some of this insight and information. But it reached us at a place where we weren't wrestling with those. I didn't read books prior to becoming a Christian, just being honest with you. So I wasn't <laughs> a book reader. It was my faith. And my curiosity and my skepticism, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, after accepting Jesus, I was like, wait, what the heck do I believe? And I had to start reading. And Tim's books were really uh, were helpful for me. Now, Chris, you're nodding away. You obviously completely agree with what Lecrae is saying. But, but both you and Peter, and I'm sure Lecrae as well, you've sort of all mentioned that you may not have necessarily seen completely eye to eye with Tim Keller on every aspect of theology. But but you sort of, Chris, I know for a fact you had those discussions with Tim, didn't mm. you? And it and it was just very gracious in the way that you had those discussions, right? It was. I, I mean, at, at the Oxford mission, Tim, after you know 
spending a long time with lots of the audience and, and giving a big talk, he kind of talked us through how he put his sermon together, how he prepared, um, and it, it, was, it was great. It was, the Craig talked earlier about how the sausage was made. This, this was a good sausage. You know, <laughs> it was great to see how he did it. And I, I think just to come off what the Craig was saying, that there was something about him that it's often said in order to explain something simply, you have to understand something profoundly. And, and that was true for Tim in that he had, he had a big brain, he had a big heart, um, but he, didn't, he, he never felt like he was showing off. He, he didn't have an affectation. He didn't have to name drop a scholar or use a long word when a short one would do. And, and I think that made him accessible. But I, I guess the areas where we did disagree, and, and it, it, it was a strange disagreement, because if, if you read his books, as I've said, they're mere Christianity, right? They're centre ground. He's not trying to score points against different groups of people or different types of Christians. He's saying the stuff that we all want the world to know about, the stuff that really you should be willing to to, to live or die for as a Christian. You know, the truth of the resurrection, the, the you know, the grace of God, the, the the need to repent and turn away from sins. Those are kind of core Christian views. But where we disagreed, and, and again, he was very gracious and, you know, listened to little old me talk to him about it. <laughs> he helped found something called the Gospel Coalition. And I said to him, Tim, the Gospel Coalition sounds like a coalition around the gospel. I don't know. That, that's, that's how I read it. But you've included in the Gospel Coalition the need to have to sign up to be complementarian in your views of men and women's leadership. I don't believe that. I think there are great examples of women in the Bible that God has gifted to be leaders, uh, whether you're looking at Deborah in the Old Testament or um, you know, even Junior the Apostle in the New Testament. So we don't agree on that. I can't join your gospel coalition. Do you think I'm not a Christian? Do you think I don't believe the gospel? And he said, no, no, I don't. You know, I, I, I don't think these are gospel issues. I said, well, maybe you should rebrand then. Don't call it the Gospel Coalition. Call it the Complementarian Coalition, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's bigger, right? But anyway, we, I have the utmost respect for him because the way that he dealt with me asking silly questions was with grace. And I think we mentioned earlier the way that he has supported people like Tish Warren, who definitely is a woman with a, a leadership gift. That didn't stop him. But I, I think, you know, the, the ability to have an, a, a disagreement in an agreeable way is another sign of, of his grace and humility. And, and I, I love that about him. I love that that didn't ostracize me from a conversation with him or us inviting him to come and speak and for me to enjoy all of his amazing books. So I, th I think there was great grace and humility in him, even when we disagreed. Mm. And Peter, I know you're really passionate about defending the rights of even those who we disagree with. How did Tim Keller model that in his ministry? Well, I think he I think he modeled it in his ministry um, just because of his public engagement. Uh, uh, he he was not he was a person of deep convictions, but not hard edges. And uh, honestly, I think his 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 temperament, his innate temperament, helped him. He was he was not someone drawn to conflict. He was by nature, I think, a peacemaker, a bridge builder, um, and I think that honestly predated and was apart from his Christianity. But I think his faith deepened that. It, in my experience, um, faith has one of two effects on a lot of people. It makes them harder or more gracious, more arrogant or more humble. Um, 
sharper edges or sanded off edges. And Tim was a person that I think the effect on him as a, as a, as a person uh, was elevating um, and more capacious. So I think he did it very much in his in his public ministry. So, you know, if you go and YouTube conversations he had with people at the Veritas Forum and so forth, where they're asking him questions like some of the ones we're talking about, um, you, you know, he's 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 gracious. Um, and then there's the element that we, we all three talked about, which is just personally, he was he was he was gracious to to people. Um, there, there were a couple of things about uh, about him that I, that I wanted to say. First is. I don't know that I've met anybody in my life who delighted more in the discussion of ideas than Tim. Uh, there's maybe one person that I can that I can think of. It formed him. It fascinated him. It vivified him. It animated him. So um, in my experience, that was kind of where he lived. He was very prof professorial in, in in that, and he and that's why I think he loved the engage in the engagement. Um, but I think he was open to different points of views because there, there was a line that Owen Barfield used with C.S. Lewis because Barfield and Lewis had some pretty intense, if esoteric debates during their time and they loved each other. I think the first Lewis, the first book that Lewis ever wrote was dedicated to Owen Barfield. I think he referred to him as my first and greatest teacher. And, um, and what Lewis describes in Surprised by Joy, the nature of that relationship, how they disagreed on things but how they were better because of their friendship, because they helped each other together to see things that separately they couldn't see. In a sense, they, they widened the aperture of understanding. And, and Barfield said uh, of Lewis, Lewis and I uh, never debated for victory. We debated for truth. And that's an entirely different sensibility if you have a discussion with somebody. If you're, if you're dialoguing or debating for truth, it means you're open to weaknesses in your own argument and corrections and recalibration. If you're debating for victory, you've got a point of view and you're just going to try and you know, bury the other person until they, until they, they, uh, they change. So I think Tim had, had that. Um, and one thing that Koresh said, which, which was very true, I had this experience and in my experience with Tim, he would, he would quote philosophers and sociologists and psychologists and theologians um, a lot, but it wasn't for show. I had the feeling it was like a kid who had opened a Christmas present that he was really excited about and like wanted to share it with his friends. Cause it's like, I'm really excited about this present. I think you will be too. And um, one other thing I want to make a point about it is there is a pre-Redeemer Prez, Tim Keller, and that was the Tim Keller who was a pastor for nine years at Hopewell, Virginia. And Hopewell, Virginia is a rural, not highly educated community. And Tim was a beloved pastor there. He didn't preach the same way at Hopewell that he did at Redeemer. He could quote Nietzsche at Redeemer. He didn't quote Nietzsche at Hopewell because that wouldn't, that wouldn't uh, resonate with, with them. But when you heard Tim talk about how important Hopewell, the Hopewell experience was to him, it was absolutely formative. He deeply loved those people. And I think of Tim as sort of a great baseball pitcher. He didn't just have a great fastball. He had a change up. Um, and so for Hopewell, he could do one kind of ministry and, 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 and for Redeemer, he could, he could do another. And, and one other thing on, on that, he once told me it was a very, I mean, this shows you Tim's ability to sort of 
put things and, and synthesize things back to a word that, that Lecrae used earlier. It was a great synthesizer. But he said, when you were at Hopewell, the key was to be a great pastor and then people would listen to your sermons. You had to understand their life, invest in their life, travel the journeys of life and sorrow and grief and joy. And that in a sense gave, opened the way for them to listen to you for your sermons. In Redeemer and in Manhattan, it was the opposite. You had to prove you, you could give these intellectual, stimulating and interesting sermons. And if you could clear that bar, then they would allow you as a, to be a pastor to enter into their, into their, uh, into their lives. Lecrae, one of the things you said on your Instagram post was that he uh, pastored with no scandals. Why do you think Tim's leadership was so different from some of the big leadership scandals that we've seen in recent years? And why was he so profoundly impactful in your own life? I wouldn't be able to speak to a personal why. You know, I would just be grateful that that was the reality. Obviously, he was a human. He was imperfect. And so he could have very well fell into the, the trappings of all of the, 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 the temptations that exist for all of us. But for whatever reasons, you know, the grace of God kept him and his, uh, you know, I'm grateful for that because it's not to say that pastors are, uh, should be thrown away because of uh, their, their, them, them falling or failing in any way, but, you know, culturally people, don't know what to do with that. And it can damage people's faith um, or their relationship or their, their perspective of the church. And so I'm just grateful that that's not the story and the legacy that, that Tim left for us. I mean, one of the things that Tim Keller did, we've spoken loads about being winsome and, and not really sort of engaging in the culture wars. But I guess that leaves us with a question of, of how do we do this going forward? Peter, I know you said that we're not sure who's kind of going to step into Tim Keller's shoes on, on so many different things. But but I guess the question remains, how do we effectively engage with the world in the public square in this cultural moment? And I'd, I'd love to hear both from a kind of American side of, of, of the Atlantic with you, Peter, and then also on the UK side with you, Chris. Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and speak from, from my side of the pond. Um, I mean, I, the first thing I would say um, is, is to follow a dictum from, from, from the medical profession, which is um, do no harm. Um, I mean, I'll just speak candidly here. There's a tremendous amount of harm that's being done um, by the so-called evangelical movement uh, in the United States. Um, and um, for me, uh, politically in the last 10 years or so have been most painful because of what I think it's done to damage the uh, witness of the Christian church and the Christian faith to, to an unbelieving world. Um, I think if, if people saw what was happening here and, and, and saw the way that, uh, that, that people who, who profess to be Christians have embraced uh, an, an ethic that's antithetical to Christianity, um, anger uh, and grievances and resentments and crudity and cruelty, um, that's just done tremendous harm. Um, the way that I've described it is that if you were an atheist and you decided that you went in, wanted to go into a laboratory and um, create political figures and political movements, it could do more to discredit the Christian faith. It'd be hard to come up with something more effective than what we, we've seen in the last number of years. 
the new atheists have gotten a huge amount of help from the people uh, who, who who claim to be to be the followers of Christ. So that's just from a personal perspective. Um, just stop doing the damage. I'd say beyond that, so what can be done? I think probably what what needs to be done is what historically has worked the most, um, and that is. Um, you know, if you look at the extraordinary rise of Christianity in the first three centuries, what was it? It wasn't cultural power. It wasn't political power. It was the nature of the community and the lives of the people who claimed to be followers of Christ. And that had a particular manifestation in the first two and three centuries in, in, in Palestine. But it was reaching out to the, to the weak and the poor and the dispossessed women uh, who, who, who were considered at best or third-class citizens. Um, and there was a generosity of spirit um, and a kindness. Um, and they had offered a, a sanctuary um, to, 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 to people. And I think today, um, we know this through, 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 through research and, 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 and through evidence, that there's a tremendous amount of loneliness um, and alienation and, and harm um, suicides, depression, whole constellation of mental health crises. And people are longing for a place to go. And the church of a friend, Yuval Levin, is Jewish. And he's puzzled because he, he says, as, as a perspective of an outsider, he says, this is a moment, it seems to me, that the Christian church was made for. And if we could offer a sanctuary to, to those people, um, I think it would make a world um, of, of, of difference. And I, you know, and I think in the end, as speaking as a person of the Christian faith, <clears throat> I mean, I think of an analogy, which is, you know, somebody came to you, they were overweight and they said, I got to lose 50 pounds. And you said, okay, I think I can help you. And they said, but I want to stipulate two things. I don't want to exercise more and I don't want to eat less. <laughs> now show me how to lose those 50 pounds. It's like, ah, that's a little harder. <laughs> and I think in, in the context we have to have our hearts won to Christ, people who are Christians. The affections of our heart have to be won over. And when that happens, your life changes. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it hopefully means that uh, it it's, is better and more generous and more compassionate, more empathetic than it would otherwise be, and more truthful as, um, as well. And um, so I just think we have to get back to fundamentals and then the outworking of, of that um, because the sensibilities matter. If you've got people who know scripture and they have the wrong sensibilities, it's not going to end well. And so that kind of shaping of sensibilities in community and in worship and in our own lives, I think in the end, that's the prescription for renewal. Um, and, you know, fortunately, the gates of hell won't prevail. But, um, but this is a tough time in this country. And, uh, and as I said, it's a painful time. Hopefully we can turn it into to a, a more hopeful and generous time. Chris, we're, we're obviously not in exactly the same context as, as Peter is in America, but do you have any thoughts about, uh, you know, some of the things that he was saying in light of being in the UK, part of Europe, in a sort of, in some ways, a much more sort of overtly secular space as well? I agree with Peter, and I think a lot of the same movements are afoot here in the UK. Um, a lot of our politics is borrowing from Donald Trump's playbook, uh, an increased nationalism, a fear of immigration, a rejection of asylum. Um, the, these have become 
tropes in British culture. And I think it's been a bit of ping pong. You know, we, we, we had Brexit, they had Donald Trump, and then it, it's come back to us again. So I, I think these you can see these trends in a lot of countries around the world with the rise of populism and nationalism. And too often the church has been co-opted into that. We've, we've provided the mascot for nationalism. And you think, how is that possible for a people who are following a Jewish Messiah? How could we possibly become nationalist? Or how can we be, I think in America, white evangelicalism, I know we've used that word elastically, other group most likely to oppose helping refugees and asylum seekers. And you go, how can we be the ones following the Jesus that said, um, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. So I think a lot of the same issues that Peter's wrestling with, we are wrestling with in the UK too. And I'm so with you, Peter, that, that Sanctuary, I called my not-for-profit Sanctuary Foundation, uh, because I think this idea of welcome and solace and refuge, whether that's to refugees or vulnerable children or lonely people, that that is our calling. It's how we can shine. I, th I think one of the things that I really appreciate about Tim, because we've talked about these different normally polarised things that he brings together. So pastor and apologist, those are two not normally compatible things, but uh, evangelist, and a person passionate about justice. You know, those are normally not things that come together. They come together in Jesus, but they rarely come together in a, a Christian leader. And I've got my pile of Tim Keller books here. This was one of my favorites, Generous Justice. Um, I think Tim instinctively knew, um, and it's clear in scripture that, that the witness of the church is both in works and in words. And he, he wrote a lot about needing to demonstrate the justice of God in a kind, compassionate way in, in an unbelieving culture. Um, and I think we need more of that authentic Christianity, obedient Christianity, full orb, you know, discipleship that is walking in the footsteps of Christ. And, and Jesus was the word, but he also spoke the word. He demonstrated and declared it. Those two things come together. And I'm nervous that there are few people with Tim's reach and platform that are combining those things well. I think the other thing I'm nervous about as I look to the future, it's a little bit like the transition from Billy Graham to his son. Billy Graham, at his best, seemed to be equally at home offering solace, pastoral counsel and challenge to a Republican president as he was to a Democratic president. He didn't belong to a side. He transcended it. And I felt like that about Tim. I've seen Tim around a, a table in the White House with Obama, you know, a, a, a Democrat, uh, but equally, you know, offering advice to a Republican. Um, and I'm not sure the next generation will follow that. I'm nervous that they'll tribalize. Um, I, I haven't I'm being naughty now, but the Keller Foundation, which takes Tim Keller's name, is run by the Gospel Coalition. And as far as I can see, I could be wrong, it, it seems to be complementarianism is a prerequisite to be a Keller person. And in fact, the first bit of writing, I think, that came out was a pretty controversial one about sex being a model of the gospel. And it, it was actually really offensive, um, both 
theologically, but also when it comes to the roles of men and women. So there's an opportunity, uh, you know, a reset moment that we make sure that we honour Tim Keller's legacy by the same kind of winsome, mere Christianity that majors on the central things of the gospel and doesn't become another tribalized group. The gospel's too precious to belong to a tribe. It calls all of us to account. And I, I want, I can recommend a Tim Keller book to anybody. Um, I want to be able to do the same with what comes out of the Keller Foundation. But I'm nervous it will come loaded with um, theological tribalism or, or worse, um, political tribalism. And I don't think that would be a fitting legacy for Tim Keller. So I'd love to be proved wrong. And, you know, let, 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 let me be more hopeful. Um, I think there are there are a generation I was so encouraged to hear from Lecrae. I didn't know about all the personal ministry he's been doing. It's fabulous that there are people just quietly getting on and doing the work that Tim Keller modelled so well. We might not have public figures that are doing that, but he has an incredible amount of people that owe so much of their spiritual formation to him. Maybe that's where the revolution begins and maybe that's what we need in a culture that increasingly is wary of celebrities, that we've seen so many you know, high-profile celebrity pastors fall. Maybe it's about the quiet obedience of men and women who are really just trying to get on with the gospel and the kingdom. And Keller's work is going to provide the fuel and the help for us to do that. As, as we wrap up, Peter, I would love to know what you think Tim Keller would make of this podcast about him. You know, as a humble man, I'm sure he would not be a massive fan. But what are some of the things that, that he would think about what we've been saying today? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Tim was uncomfortable with focus being on him. You know, the one book that was done on him was not actually a biography. It was an intellectual and spiritual biography, because that was Tim's way of saying, I want to pay tribute to the people who shaped and formed for me. So I'm sure he'd be, be uncomfortable about that, that aspect of, um, of, of the podcast. But I honestly think what would give him encouragement was the, the legacy that he left, the lessons that he left, and the way that he touched each of our lives, um, honestly, uh, in a way that was, that was personal, um, as well as pastoral and the intellectual um, imprint. Uh, the way one, a friend of mine put it uh, is that Tim was personally humble, but he was ambitious for the kingdom. And, um, and this, this uh, you know, his, his impact and his imprint was, was substantial. I know somebody who was very close uh, to Tim. Um, and I know that the tributes meant a lot to this person because his family, um, gave up a lot uh, because he was such a public person and so busy and traveled. And and so there was a, a loss there. I mean, he was a very present father and husband and the relationship between Tim and Kathy was, was really beautiful and, and lovely. But there was a cost and a sacrifice to it. And I, I know his family in seeing the outpouring of both grief and gratitude felt like that was an affirmation. That's why we were willing to give part of him up to, to the wider world. It wasn't for fame. It wasn't for glory. It wasn't for power. It wasn't for money. It was to advance the kingdom. And he did. And I think this podcast, thanks to you uh, and, 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 and the way you've guided it, was a small reflection from 
three of us who were touched by his life um, about how he impacted the, the, the kingdom. And as I said, he, he, each of our lives in a different way. Krish, final thoughts on any quotes or bits of advice or anything that you're going to take away from Tim? Oh, there's so much. I mean, he, he takes up more shelf space on my bookshelf than anyone else <laughs> at the moment. But I think the quote that comes up most often on Twitter when you look for Tim Keller's name, and it's, it's the one that I think summarizes a lot of uh, what he says. He, he The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. And I think that's so profound because Tim wasn't afraid to talk about tough truths, culturally challenging truths that call people from wherever we've come from, whatever our background, to repentance. But also this this incredible grace that motivated him to do the ministry that he did. And I think that combination, you know, truth and grace um, is such a powerful thing. That's the way of Jesus. That's Jesus was described as he grew up, you know, he was full of truth and grace. And I think, you know, we've seen it in Tim. There are other leaders around the world that model it. But, but that's that's what I want to be true of me. And that's what I want to be true of the church. So I think that probably is the quote that will stick with me the longest from Tim's amazing, huge ministry. Lecrae, what is the final thing that you, the piece of advice or book or thought that you're going to take with you from Tim Keller? Um, you know, the, the thing I take away from Tim Keller um, personally is that, especially listening to Peter talk, you know, uh, him knowing him so personally, is that he was a learner and, and he was, you know, a chaser of ideas and conversations. And I think I want to continue on that journey as well. I want to learn until my final hour. I want to continue pursuing, you know, truth and wisdom and and parsing it out lovingly and graciously amongst people who may not look like me or come from the same backgrounds or share the same views that I have. Uh, and, and I think if he's taught me anything, you know, that's one of the things that I'll, I'll most cherish about uh, Tim Keller. Well, thank you so much to all of you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Krish Kandaya, Peter Weiner and Lecrae, thank you so much for joining me today on Unbelievable. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Thank you. thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next week. <laughs>